Man, you can be seated. Isn't that the most compelling story ever? The most compelling message in the world that a father loves his children so much that it doesn't matter how much they rebel, how much they run away, how much, how much they do that's damaging and hurts them. He's going to continue chasing after them, continue following them, searching for them, inviting them into a relationship. That, that is the most compelling story ever. If you are here and maybe you haven't been in church in a long time, maybe never, maybe all of this stuff is, is so unbelievable because it seems too good to be true. We have a God who loves us that much. So much that he, he, he truly, he, you know, he created a people for relationship. And even in the midst of our rebellion, he kept saying, I am going to come after you in love to invite you to join me. So much so I'm going to become human and die on the cross, paying for your sin so that you can have life with me. And it is the constant invitation. If you're here this morning and you feel so broken, so messed up, so unworthy that you're like, I don't deserve that. Well, you're amongst the right people because we don't deserve it either. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that we get to be here together. I hope desperately that no matter how broken or how messed up your life is, you know, some, there are people in here going through divorce. There are people in here who are struggling with um, abusive situations because anytime you have a group of this many people in a room, there, there is a lot of pain in here. And God wants you to know he wants to walk with you in the pain. And no matter what you've done, no matter how, no matter what you've become, he says, welcome. I want you to come. I invite you in. Had, that was totally not on the books today, but as I'm singing that song, I'm like, you know, he's, he'll climb any mountain for me. He'll climb any mountain for you just to invite you in. It's a beautiful message. It's, it's, um, it's powerful. Now, I will, I'm going to warn you now, I'm a, I'm a little discombobulated today because I had my message done and everything was good, and then yesterday I attended a funeral. And at this funeral, it was for a dear friend who passed away. She, she lost a 10-year battle with cancer. And um, so we, we were in Lakeland yesterday attending that, that funeral, and it gave me a completely new perspective about what I wanted to share with you today. We're going to be in Acts 12. We're, we're continuing this this series through the book of Acts, and I'm going to be talking today about a story that, uh, where we look at what it cost the early church to follow Jesus, and, you know, and then uh, the goal was to apply that to our lives, and what, you know, what does it cost us, uh, you know, to, to live out this thing we call Christianity, this thing we call following Jesus, and, and it does. Every, it, it has a cost because everything great in our lives has a cost. If you want to be good at a sport, it costs a lot of money and time and every Saturday and afternoons and practices, and, you know, and it's great, but it costs, and if you have kids, it costs a bit, you know. Um, it costs sleepless nights, as any of you with young children know. It costs hearts that hurt because you love somebody so much that, that you worry about them when you can't find them. And you, you hurt when they choose damaging choices, you know, in their life. And, and it costs so much more than time and money to have kids. Kids are great, but it costs a lot. It costs so much of a heart. Even our ability to know God costs him dearly. 
It's free for us. But it was not free for Jesus as he died on that cross. So as at the funeral yesterday, I'm, I'm listening to all these people talk about how amazing Teresa was and how, how she was so full of, of joy and hope and faith. And it became clear to me, yeah, you know, following Jesus does have a cost. It does. But it is so worth it. It is so worth it. You know, the, the joy that Teresa had in the midst of suffering, and, and we... She was, I was her pastor when she found out she had cancer, and she, I remember her telling me and telling me that they didn't know what was going to happen and all the prognosis, and I remember her overwhelming joy in the midst of all of that. As she's telling me, she still has this joy that God is in control, whether he heals me or not, it's all going to be okay. And it blew me away. I, I remember the hope that she had and, um, when she was told she had six months to live. And she said, God is in control, and it's all going to be okay in the end. And she trusted her Jesus. And I remember, and what I heard about was the gratitude that she had when that six months turned into two years before she passed away. And she was able to hold grandbabies that she never would have held if she had died after six months. And she was able to love on her kids and say extended goodbyes. You know, following Jesus... It, it cost her a lot. It cost Teresa everything. And she died saying that she would do it over and over again, a hundred times, a thousand times. It was so worth it. See, following Jesus is the one thing that satisfies to the core. And it does. It's not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. But it satisfies to the core because it's what we were created for. It is. That is, God created us to be in relationship with him. So as we talk today about Acts 12, and as we talk today about, about this, this amazing story that shows some of the high cost that, that the early church had to pay to be followers of Jesus, I pray this. I pray that you continually filter that through that grid that it is so worth it. It's so worth it. So with that, uh, let's, let's go ahead and, and jump in. You know, two weeks ago, we were in Acts 11, and I shared what I was calling the, um, the trilogy. And, of course, my button. There it is. Yes. We were talking about the trilogy of God's story, and you know, I'm not going to go through it all again. But the bottom line was that, you know, we had episode one, which was the Old Testament, where God worked through the Jewish people. And uh, those Abraham's descendants, and that's what the whole Testament is about. It's, it's episode one of the trilogy. And then episode two was, was Jesus, the coming of the one who was promised throughout the Old Testament. He was here. And so episode two is about Jesus and his promise to send his spirit. That he would create this multi-ethnic group of people who are the people of God, the family of God, who would be his hands and feet in the world. And that started episode three. It's the church. And that's an episode that we are still participating in today. We are a part of episode three. And after Jesus' death and re resurrection, the Spirit descended on all of those followers in Jerusalem, and the church was born. And, and it started exploding. And when it exploded, it was an entirely Jewish movement at the time. And hundreds of de were declaring that they too had seen the resurrected Jesus because we need to remember something. And this is important. Before the New Testament was written, before we had all of the Gospels and all of the, the letters and Revelation and all of this stuff, before 
all of that, the faith, this Jesus movement, faith in Jesus, people following Jesus was growing exponentially. Why? It was because of an event that actually happened. That sometime in 30-something, 30-ish A.D., a man named Jesus died on the cross. Having lived his life healing people and telling people he would rise from the dead. And on that third day, he actually rose from the dead, saw all of these followers, ate with them, and, and 500 people at one time. And that event was what caused the explosion of Christianity in, the early, in that early first century. People were saying, I saw Jesus. And with the, the power of the Spirit and, and them sharing the story, people were going, I want to follow that Jesus. And it exploded 3,000 in one day. Hundreds and hundreds of more just kept coming into this Jewish church. And quickly, the Jewish leaders, the same ones that crucified Jesus, were upset and they started persecuting the followers of Jesus just like they had persecuted Jesus himself. And so, like, like God does, he's amazing, and like he does he, with the cross, he created something beautiful out of something awful. Because as those people were being persecuted, they started scattering. And as they started scattering, they carried the message of Jesus everywhere they went. And it changed the world, even into the Gentile world. So because I tell you I like maps, and because some of you are bold enough to tell me you like maps, we get maps. I'm just kidding. I like them. So, but, you know, so they're, they're persecuted. They're fleeing. They go from Jerusalem into the area of Judea, which is right outside of Jerusalem, north to the area of Samaria, which is just, you know, this, this small. All of these people are, are Jewish or at least Jewish-leaning, and, um, and the faith is growing like crazy. Resurrections proclaimed, many more believe, and then the persecution is continually getting stronger and stronger until it finally makes it all the way north into Antioch, a Gentile city. Not just a Gentile city. One of the three, one, like the third or fourth largest city in the entire Roman Empire. And that's what we talked about last time in Acts 11, how that, the message of Jesus just started expanding rapidly amongst first the Jews in Antioch and then into the Gentile world. But Luke, the way he goes, he keeps going in, in Acts, he'll go like chapter 11 about the Gentiles in Antioch, and then chapter 12, he goes back to Jerusalem. And what's happening in Jerusalem, as the church is exploding in Antioch and as people are coming to follow him in droves, what's happening back in Jerusalem is that the persecution is getting very heavy. People started suffering in deep, deep ways. The chief priests, they started complaining to the Roman authorities, and they, they figured it out. They were like, these, these Jesus followers are claiming that Jesus is the king of the Jews. But, Roman authorities, we thought there was no king but Caesar. You should do something about them. And so they do. And that's where we are today. Government gets involved. And then Jerusalem's governor, he was the grandson of King Herod. You know, remember the Christmas story? King Herod slaughtered all the babies in Bethlehem. Really nice guy. Well, the current governor or the king of Jerusalem and Judea is Herod's grandson. And he's called Herod Agrippa. So guess what Herod's official title from Rome, Herod Agrippa, his official title from Rome was king of the Jews. It was. And so, let's look at Acts 12. 
It says, you know, about that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James. This was John's brother, one of the ones who walked with Jesus. He had him killed with the sword. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, and he means like the priests, the chief, the chief priests, those people, he arrested Peter. And this took place during the Passover celebration. So while, while the church in Antioch is expanding under Paul and Barnabas and great things are happening back in Jerusalem, the government gets involved because they will not tolerate anybody worshiping another king. Herod arrests one of the main leaders of the movement. Now, it's really weird is there's a lot of James in the New Testament. James was like, it seems sometimes like women, everybody's name was Mary, and men, everybody's name was James. And so we're gonna, you're going to see James' name come up, and you're like, whoa, did he rise from the dead? No, he didn't. It's a different James. We're going to get there. But So James is a common name. This James who died was from the Gospels. This is the James, like James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the ones who, you know, their mother was like, Jesus, can you have one of my sons sit on your right, one on the left, that James. I mean, he is like one of the tight ones, and he is killed. His brother John, he's the guy who uh, wrote the Gospel of John, and um, James is killed, and uh, Herod Agrippa is just this psycho guy who will not allow anybody to be king of the Jews on his watch. He alone is king of the Jews. And so everybody's excited. They're happy that James has been killed. And so he grabs Peter. Now, for those of you who know, I mean, Peter, Peter, Catholics call Peter the first pope. That's how important this figure was. Peter was the leader in the Jerusalem church. I mean, it's one thing taking James one of the secondary leaders, but now they have Peter. What, what's the church going to do if they kill Peter? I mean, everything. He, he is like, he's the guy. Acts continues, verse 4. It says, Then Herod imprisoned Peter, placing him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. By the way, this is where he would die. While Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. And you just wonder, I mean, what was the church feeling? This is like a couple of years after the resurrection. This is not a long time. The church has been suffering for a while now because first under Saul, who then became a Christian, and then he left and went, you know, and did, did stuff with Barnabas. But they have been suffering for years. Then James dies, and now Peter's about to die. You just, I don't think we can fully understand the fear that they were feeling because this is their beloved leader. I mean, he was there first. When Peter dies, who's left? You know, all these apostles have been leaving and they've been going and doing things all over. What's going to happen to the church in Jerusalem? That's the center of Christianity at this time. So Peter's arrested. Everybody thinks he's going to die. And then verse 6, it says, The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. That, and then the angel struck him on the side to awaken, awaken him, and he said, Quick, get up! And the chains fell off of his wrists. Then the angel told him, Get dressed, put on your sandals. And so he did. And now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. And so Peter left the cell following the angel. And I love this part. It says, but all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize this was actually happening. I mean, what the world's going on? 
I love that Peter didn't know. I love it because this was not expected. This was not part of the playbook. You see, Peter truly thought he was going to die. So the rescue is surreal for him. So it says in verse 10, they, they passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And the iron gate opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street. And then the angel suddenly left him. Verse 11, Peter finally came to his senses. It's, <laughs> I, I'm sure English doesn't do a good job with this. It, it's really true. That's what you say when you're by yourself in a street. We're in prison. It's really true. But I'm sure in Greek it was like, holy cow. But anyway, um, so, and he's like, the Lord sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. So Peter, he's shocked. I mean, he, you know they've all been praying that Peter would be released, just like they were praying for James. But James didn't get out. James died. Why, why did God not spare James, yet he spared Peter, did he love Peter more? Well, you know that's not true because it was a couple of years later when Peter was arrested, he was killed. In fact, tradition says that Peter was crucified. That's how he died. No, that's actually not true. <laughs> Peter was crucified upside down. That's what tradition tells us. So eventually, he died too. Oh, in this moment, verse 12 tells us when Peter realized that he was free, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, who will be introduced next week, where many were, were gathered for prayer. And so Peter knocks at the door in the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came out to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, and I love this, this is how you know these stories are true. Because if you were making up a story, you would not say this. This is just like ridiculous. But so she recognizes Peter's voice. She's so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she runs back inside and tells everybody, Peter's at the door. Peter's at the door. And you know, this is so funny to me. Let me put it in context. Let me put the picture together because the way it was back then, families would often live in a community. Like, um, you know, mom and dad would have a kid. The kid would grow up, they would get married, and they'd build a home next to them. And so over time, there was like several members of the family living around a courtyard, and often they would have a gate to the courtyard. And so Peter is probably, you know, he he's escapes from prison. He's standing at the door of the courtyard, knocking. They're hearing, hey, somebody's at the courtyard door, um, you know, and you can imagine, Peter, he's like knocking, going, I just escaped from prison. Let me in, please, you know, what's going to happen? And they send, you know, they send a young girl, hey, go see who's at the door and see what's happening. She goes out. She recognizes Peter's voice. She's so excited. She leaves him out there, and he's like, seriously, let me in. You don't know what's going on. She tells everybody it's Peter, and what is their response? Verse 15. You're out of your mind, they said. I mean, Rhoda, seriously. Seriously, Peter's in prison. He is not getting out. You're out of your mind. So she insists, and they decide it must be his angel. I love the fact that they actually have time to contemplate this instead of going and answering the door. It still, <laughs> it still cracks me up. But the fact that they, they thought it was his angel, I don't think that's sarcasm. I think that's giving us an indication of what they really thought. They thought he was dead. They thought they, that he had already been killed. I mean, that's the only thing I, I, I could come up with because I'm like, why do you say that? Well, angels happen, and, and by the way, we don't become angels, but they were still learning their theology, okay? Um, he, they expected he had died. 
Must, he must have already been dead. So verse 16 says, Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. When they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down because, again, shh, we don't want to cause everybody to look at us, and told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. And I love this. Tell James and the other brothers what happened, he said. And then he went to another place. He went into hiding. Peter left. Can you imagine this moment? Everybody, I mean, Peter's captured. He's in prison. Everybody's expecting him to die. All of a sudden, he's knocking at the door, and he tells this crazy story that he was, he was let out of prison. He doesn't have any... You know, everybody's like, this is really weird, except Peter's standing right there, and everybody knows he was arrested. Peter decides to take off, and he says, instruct James and the others. What's really interesting is that from this point on in Acts you get the indication that James has now become the leader of the Jerusalem church. You know, Peter, all of a sudden, Peter's in Antioch, and Peter goes some other places, and James seems to, seems to be the one. And so in that moment, Peter is kind of like delegating. It doesn't need to all be about me anymore. Let's let James in on this too. And then so Peter left in verse 18. At dawn, there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. You can imagine. I mean, he's like in between two soldiers on chains, and now he's not. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him, and when he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. And afterward, Herod left Judea to vacation in Caesarea for a while. Man, this is such an interesting story. This whole week, I was putting myself in the story, like I, I was imagining the emotions that, that they must have been feeling we, we can't even imagine this. I mean, some of you, I know some of you with crew, you've spent a lot of time overseas, and so maybe you can imagine it more than me. But I cannot imagine being somewhere and my leader being arrested and, and, and you know, one of, our, one of our leaders being arrested and killed and then the leader being arrested and you're just, you pretty much have no hope that he's gonna make it. What, what kind of fear are they dealing with? Fear about their loved one who they're about to be without? Fear about their, the church? What's gonna happen to us? What's gonna happen to me and my family? Are they coming for us next? You know, it was just a few years earlier Pentecost came and the spirit descended and everybody was so excited and things were, it was like nothing could stop the growth. Nothing could stop what God was doing. But now, the cost of following Jesus had become so real. They were losing people they loved dearly. People that, you know, their leaders, people they were looking up to. And what was their response? That's what they were doing in the house. They were trusting God and they were praying and they were fasting together. They were worshiping together. They, they stayed unified, even though it, it's like everything should have been ripping them apart because everything was falling apart. But they stay, stayed unified and stay unified, and we can learn so much from them. So much. I mean, why? Why would they risk it all? Why would they risk everything? Two reasons come to my mind. One, because it was true. I mean, the people in those rooms, most of them, they were the ones who saw the resurrected Jesus. So they knew this was true. This wasn't some made-up story. I mean, they were risking their lives based on something that they saw. So it was true, because nobody, nobody goes through this for a lie. So, but the second reason is, why would they do it? 
Why would they put themselves through it? It was worth it. It was worth it. How? What could be so good that it's worth risking your life for? It's worth risking your kid's life for? It's worth risking your future? Everything is on the line. What could be so worth it? That is a great question. There was some kind of hope that they had. There was some kind of joy that they had that made it all okay. That in the end, they knew, I might die. My kids might die. I might suffer. I might starve. But in the end, my hope is it's all going to be okay. And in the process, in the journey, I will never be alone. I will be walking alongside God himself, walking with me. And not only that, I will be walking amongst a family of people in this journey. We're going to be okay, is what they were saying. Not only that, God's going to use us to do something that we could not imagine. And I promise you this, they could never imagine. I mean, they didn't even know America, that this land existed, but they could not imagine that 2,000 years later from this moment, billions of people would be worshiping the Jesus that they saw rise from the dead. Billions. They had hope. They had hope. They had experienced physical community together. They were God's family. They were loved. They had a purpose. And they knew that they were God's plan to reach the world to invite others into the family. And what's amazing is today we're doing the same thing. We are the continuation of that family. Isn't that amazing? That we, we have the privilege of being God's tangible presence in the world. That, you know, Jesus ascended to heaven. The Spirit comes and dwells. Why? I do not know. But indwells people, us, and we are God's hands and feet in the world. That is the plan. There's no other plan. I'm like God. I don't like that plan. I don't think it's a very good plan because I know me and I'm a mess. And he says, trust me, trust me. And look at what's happened in the world. See, no matter what the cost, it's worth it, but there is a cost. And so I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to just share some things that, that were on my heart this week as I was looking at them and looking at the early church and then comparing it to us. I mean, you think, well, we do have it pretty good. There's not a lot of people in, in, in this country dying for their faith, but there is, there is people around the world dying for their faith, for sure. But there is one kind of death that is for all of us, and it's dying to ourselves. And I don't like that. Do you? I mean, seriously. I watch my kids be told no. It's not a pretty sight. So I know that when God, when I, he says, you know, die to yourself, I want to say no because I want what I want. You want what you want, Right? So, dying to ourselves is hard. All death is painful. And, but what's really crazy is that he tells us, listen, <laughs> you're missing the point, big man. You know, die to yourself, and that's how you find life. See, Don, I, I don't know if God says it with that kind of, you know, attitude or not. I'm not sure, but that's how I hear it. Don, when you live for yourself, you're never happy. I mean, you are for a short time, but everything gets old. When you live your way, the pain lasts forever, so long. When you live your way, you mess up all the time. When you live your way, you are not satisfied. But when you die to yourself and do things my way, you find it full of life and hope and joy. 
tell me I'm not the only one who does it their way and never is glad they did. Is it just me? All right, all right. Does that God talk to you with the same attitude? I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> so, so what are some of the costs for us? One of the ways that I have learned I have to die to myself has to do with my time. You know, it's, 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 love, it's time spent working on the relationship with God, loving God. He loves me. He's done everything necessary for me. He came, he died, he continually chases me down or hunts me down, depending on the verb you want to use the day, you know. He continually is inviting me, which is probably a nicer, softer way of saying hunting me down, but um, invites me into relationship. But so one of the ways that I know that I have to die to myself is invest in a relationship with God. No different than I have to invest in a relationship with my wife. No different than my kids. No different than friends or church family. I have to invest in my relationship with God. You know, and, and so for me, what, what does that mean for me? You know, yeah, some people around the world are dying. I just need to get up 30 minutes early. But uh, that was, sounded so trite, because it is trite. But it's still dying to self. I like sleeping. Anybody else like sleeping? Yeah, okay, good. I, I like sleeping a lot. And so dying to myself, what did Jesus say? I have two commandments for you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the greatest commandment. And what is the second? Love others as yourself. But loving God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, that is where we find life and hope and faith. Do you realize we can do everything right as a church? Everything. We could have amazing ministries, amazing kids' ministries. We can reach the world but if we don't love Jesus and aren't following, falling more and more in love with Jesus, it doesn't matter. Do you realize that? I mean, loving God, being in that relationship with him is the most important thing we can do. Dying to myself means saying, God, you're more important than me. Duh. And when I do that, all of a sudden, I, f I begin to find life I begin to find something inside. That is just amazing to me, but it's true. See, followers of Jesus, we must be intentional to foster that relationship. That's one way we die to ourselves, Because when we fall in love with Jesus, he does a work in us. And one of those things that he does in us, it's not just good feelings for us. He instills in us a passion to do the second commandment, to love people. You know, some people are easier to love than others. You know, we can love our families. We can love our in-laws. That's a little bit more difficult. We can love our church family. Sometimes that can be more difficult. I'm just kidding. Um, no, I'm not. Um, our neighbors, coworkers. I mean, seriously. I can't, I, I make fun of it all the time, and, and some people in here appreciate it, and some think I'm gross. It doesn't matter. Um, when we lived in Wisconsin, we had neighbors who let their dog poo in our yard daily. You don't understand what that's like when it's negative five because nothing happens until spring. <laughs> I called it poo-pourri <laughs> because it, for a week, was the most awful thing you've ever experienced in your life. I want you to know only by God's grace could I love those people. Their dogs, fine. Them, they deserve Never mind, I don't even want to say. <laughs> it was so funny because I would be tempted to get a shovel and just go to their house. <laughs> B 
but I didn't. Thank you, God, for helping me die to myself. Um, I thought that was bad, though. I found something worse here, uh, moving here. I don't know who it is, and if it's you, I'm telling you now, I love you. Stop. Drivers in Orlando. Is it just me? I'm new here. My wife was almost killed just this past week, and I'm not even exaggerating. Two guys who were racing down 408, racing, and they cut her off, and she was like going 55. What if, what if they would have hit me? And, and I'm like, I know. <sighs> Only by God's grace could I love these, them because I don't want to. I want to hurt them. Am I alone? <laughs> Maybe we should start a life group. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not. Um, see, I mean this. The more we love Jesus, the more we are empowered to love people. We talked about it last week. I think, I think Jim mentioned it. But do you realize that it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us? While we were racing down a highway, putting families at risk, Christ died for us. While we were letting our dog poo in somebody's yard, which I'm actually okay with, just clean it up. But, and we're going to say no. We're going to let them smell the beautiful fragrance of poopery in three months or six months, depending on when, when it happened. Um, only by God's grace could we love these people. And you know what? And this is what kills me. I'm these people. Because these people are me. Yeah, I might not let my dog poo in your yard. By the way, um, I mentioned poo like six times today, so just let you know. I'm, I, I am told every time I mention poo by somebody, hey, you mentioned poo, poo again, and I'm proud of you. And I've done it three more times. Um, but seriously, I am that person. I, I don't do that, and maybe I don't race down the street, but I do some other things. I, I, I yell at my kids. I get angry easy. You know, I, I have my own issues. I, my kids are going to go to therapy for me, just like I go to therapy because of the way I was raised. Um, every time I look at somebody else and go, uh, they're, I'm better than them, God reminds me, yeah, I'm in that area. What about this area? I'm broken too. We're all broken. We need his power to love him and to love people. It's in his power that we have the strength to ask somebody for forgiveness. It's in his power that we have the strength to forgive somebody that, frankly, in your mind, they might not even deserve it. doesn't matter. It's in his power that we're able to do that. See, it's his love that enables us to be the church. It's, we are his family, his spiritual family. See, this is the beauty of the cost of following Jesus. It's hard, but we're never alone. We don't have to do it together. And so what does it look like today? You know, we are a people who serve together, love together, share the message of Jesus together, mourn together, meet needs together. That's what we do. And when we do it together, it changes everything. I had a, um, a, a conversation with Maritza this past week. She's our cafe leader. She came to me and she was apologizing. Pastor Don, I'm just so sorry we're not going to have coffee today. I already heard that from several of you. Where was the coffee today? Where was the coffee? And um, she did. She felt terrible. You know, was it because we can't worship without coffee? Yes. Um, no, not really. But I have a hard time uh, worshiping without coffee. But Maritza knows something. She knows that coffee creates an environment. 
She knows that coffee creates this warm and friendliness. When people come to our house, I offer them coffee. Why? Because I want coffee. No, because I want to, them to enjoy. I want them to feel comfortable in our house and to feel relaxed. And so when people visit our church family, don't we want them to experience the same feelings? Don't we want them to feel loved and accepted and feel like, ah, this is a good, this is a warm place, a place that's home. It's, this isn't a place that I was thinking about. I thought I was going to come in and feel judged, but I don't. We want, we want to remove every barrier possible so that people can, can capture, can understand, can feel the love of Jesus in their life and to be open to his message for them. That's what we want. And so she knows that and she felt terrible. So why is there no coffee? Because Maritza's out of town. And she was saying, I have not been able to put together the four teams that you've, you've, you've mentioned to me, you know. And, and I'm like, it's okay, Maritza. I'll use you as an illustration. And... Um, <laughs> Um, but, but the reality is, she's like, we want to put four teams together so that nobody serves more than once a month. That, <laughs> enough said, right? We're done. You know, that's what we want to do. And, and what's so funny is that, you know, she's had a hard time and she's like, so she does it. But I'm like, Maritza, we're family. That is not your responsibility. It's our responsibility. Don't you agree? I mean, isn't that what it's about? It's about us serving. Nobody should ever be burnt out. Nobody should ever feel like they're alone. That's not family. It's, not, it's dysfunctional family, maybe, but that's not healthy family. And so let me just tell you, okay, I, and I'm, joke, I'm not joking. This, she is my, my illustration. But, you know, if, if you love serving coffee or just love serving people and you're willing to be a part of a team once a month, I would love to know your name. I would love to give it to Maritza and let her share with you so that when she's out of town, we can have coffee. Not because we care about coffee. Because we, I mean, I do love coffee, but it's because we want to create an environment where, where people come into this place and know that this is a friendly place, that this is a place where they are being served. Does that sound good? If you're interested on that connection card, there's a place at the bottom that says, I want to participate by helping with coffee. There you go. All right. So, I'm going to end with this. Church, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you call Avalon Church your spiritual family, this is hard, but you don't get to be a, a consumer anymore. You don't. You're called to be a participant. You know who's the consumer? Our guests. If you're new here, I want you to know you are welcome in this place. You are welcome here as long as you need to, to find a place of safety, a, find a place of love, to find the love of Jesus through a bunch of people who are messed up, as messed up as you. We want to serve you, but I'm going to let you in on a secret. We're hoping that you fall in love with us, too. We're hoping that you fall in love with Jesus and, and move from consumer to contributor slash participant because that is where you will find life too just like we have found life. The, the church, do you agree? Amen. Amen. Let me show you a picture and then we'll end. This picture I took last Tuesday. This is a picture of 130 fifth grade students who are graduating in this room and all of their parents and grandparents. I promise you I'm not lying when I say these numbers. We had about 750 people in this room. Right now, we have about 500 chairs in this room-ish. 
we put every chair in the entire church in this room, and we still had 40 people standing. I was just glad that the fire marshal did not have a fifth grade graduating <laughs> because he would have asked us to leave. It was amazing. How many of these people in this picture right here, I mean, these are people who live in our community because they go to Avalon, their kids go to Avalon Elementary. How many of these people, their marriages are struggling and nobody knows? How many of these people are into debt up to their eyes and they're not, they're not sure if they're going to make their mortgage next month, but nobody knows? How many of these people, oh, maybe there's a kid in this picture right here who is being abused and nobody knows? See, these are real people. This isn't a made-up picture. This isn't stock photography. This isn't here. These are Avalonians. <laughs> these are people who live around us. This, this is who we are called to. This is who we, God said, Avalon Church, your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to love them, to be my hands and feet in their lives. That's, that is the beautiful cost of following Jesus. We get to be the hands and feet of Jesus in their lives. And it does have a cost. If you call church, this church, Avalon Church, your home. We need you. We need you to, be a, to help be a part of the ministries to minister to them. We need you to help fund the ministries because, frankly, there's no money coming in. All, every ministry that happens here is funded by the people in this room and those who are at the beach right now who normally come here. Um, just kidding. Everything we do is funded by this family. Everything we do is because of the volunteer hours of this family. We, I want to ask you, I implore you, let's be what God has called us to be in Avalon Park. You with me? All right, let's pray together. Jesus, wow, what a calling. I am so grateful we don't live in a, in a place or a time where we, we are killed by the sword because we follow you. But for us dying Dying to you, die, I mean, die, yeah, dying to you and dying to ourselves means helping, loving, serving, giving, being your family to our, your people to our neighbors. Oh, Jesus, help us to do that. God, I know that the future is so incredibly good for us. Help us to choose you. When I say good, I know that it's because you are going to use this church to reach so many. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to be faithful. Inspire us to make a difference in Jesus' name.